is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him, He is exalted, forever exalted, and I will praise His name. He is the Lord, forever His truth shall reign, heaven and earth rejoice in that again. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted, forever exalted, and I Father, as we pilgrimage, make our way through a, a groaning creation that is still under the curse of sin and death, as we are reminded by that reality every day, by our pandemic, 
and by politicians who do not esteem the life of the unborn. It is so encouraging this morning to be reminded, to muse on the reality that our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. He was raised from the grave, having satisfied your divine justice on sin. Your wage on sin was paid to him. He said it is finished. And there was no exaggeration to that claim. Because you raised him from the grave, signaling that indeed it was finished. And then he ascended to your right hand, where he rules in session as king by his spirit. Indeed, Lord, if Christ, in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to your right hand, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and the first fruits of a new creation that we long for. And Lord, as we gather in worship this morning, that's what we need to muse upon today. That is the reality of things. What we see in this creation that is fallen and groaning is temporary. What is real and what is eternal sits at your right hand. And we have been raised up with Christ and we are seated with him in the heavenly places as believers. May we behold that. May that reality nourish our faith this morning. And Lord, we pray for those who do not yet know Jesus in a saving way. We pray that you would convict them of their need for him. That they're sinners in need of a savior. And Lord, that they would Behold him as glorious and sufficient and necessary, and that they would flee to him in repentance and faith. We pray that they could behold Christ today. We pray, Lord, for our service, that it would magnify your worth, that it would build up your church, edify your people, and convict sinners of their need for a Savior. We ask these things today through the exalted one and in the exalted one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus faded all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed in white as snow.
Church, it's a great promise to us, and we want to gather together each week to remind ourselves of the gospel and the fact that we are in deep need of the gospel and the truth of it and to live in light of it every day. So before Pastor Brian comes, I want to do a song that is deeply fitting to set up our own hearts, to prepare us, to prepare our hearts, and to prepare our minds for the preached word that a brother will bring us from 2 Samuel. Speak, O Lord. So as these words are sung, and as you see them on your screens, if you know the song, please feel free to sing out wherever you are. We do pray that this is our prayer this morning before the word itself is preached, which is the apex of Christian worship, hearing the word of God prepared and preached for us. So let's sing together.
Good morning. You would turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 11. 
And when we have an open Bible, we know that the Lord speaks. One of my favorite lines in that wonderful song is, let your truth prevail over unbelief. And we are all like the man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. At least every believer is, can find their testimony there. And one of the benefits of singing biblical scriptural songs and reading the scripture in worship and hearing the word preached is that that very word prevails over our unbelief, and that is our greatest need. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer this morning. May your truth prevail over unbelief for your renown, for your glory, that your, may, your people may exalt in you in the person of your Son and by your Spirit. And we ask this for your Son's sake, our King, our Priest, our Prophet, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, a society for the spread of atheism published a tract that pub, uh, basically exposed the depravity and the sin of many of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. For example, beneath the picture of Abraham, there was an inscripturation in the tract that read that he was a coward, that he was willing on more than one occasion to compromise the, the welfare of his wife to save his own skin. It listed all the places where the Bible admits that. And then scandalously, when the Bible calls him the friend of God. And then the tract poses the question, what kind of God would befriend so dishonorable a man? Now, under Jacob's picture was the Bible's description of him as a liar and a deceptive cheat but also where God makes him the prince of his people. Again, the track asks, what does the Bible say, or what does this say about the character of a God who would call him the God of Jacob? Next came the reminder that Moses was a, a murderer, and yet God appointed this murderer to inscripturate, to, to write the very law of God. The track goes on to say that David, King David, was the worst of the worst. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Now we'll come back to that track later. But suffice to say for now, you know the argument that it makes about David. We saw part of it last week in the springtime when Kings go to war. David remains back at the palace, and he's in a, a state of passivity, of spiritual drifting. The name of the Lord is not even mentioned in chapter 11 until the very last verse. And then he sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. It wasn't just the first glance that got him. It was the second glance. And then he sends for information about her. He learns that she is the wife of one of his fighting men, his loyal fighting men, Uriah the Hittite. In, but in spite of that, he, he sends for her and then he seizes her. He takes that which is not rightfully his 
but life is loaded. Every decision, every choice we make is loaded like a claymore mine for good or for ill. And in this case, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, what is David going to do now? Well, the only wise, the only sane choice is for him to humble himself in contrition and repentance and to confess his sins. But that's not what David does. Garrett Kale rightly says, I believe, that before a sin, Satan tempts you to believe that repentance will be easy. But after a sin, Satan tempts you to believe that repentance is impossible. And repentance seems impossible to David at this point. He's on the path of a schizophrenic. Schizophrenos, that's a compound word that literally means double-minded. And that's the problem with the life of deception. You've got the world that is in the world you're trying to create. And he's going to have to divide time between those two worlds, and that will make you nuts. That will make you crazy. This man who knew you couldn't even be nine feet tall, you couldn't even be a giant and go against the Lord of hosts, is about to go head to head with this same God. David has entered a sin-darkened labyrinth, a maze. And as long as there's no contrition, as long as there's no godly sorrow and repentance, there's no getting out of that labyrinth. In fact, you will travel deeper in it. And the only recourse apart from repentance, from, from contrition, is that you begin vain plotting to try to get out. And that brings us to verse 6. And we see a whole list of vain plots in this passage. And the first one we see, plot A in the sin labyrinth, is found in verses 6 to 11. Now notice with me in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. And he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. It's a metaphor. And Uriah went out of the king's house. There followed him a present from the king. So he's learned that Uriah the Hittite with Bathsheba's husband. But at this point, he has silenced, um, silenced the fear of God in his heart. This is the same man who wrote Psalm 139, who says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. Same man. But at this point, he has silenced 
the fear of God, the awe of God in his heart. And his godless plan was simple and at face value, foolproof. And here's the plan. He's going to bring Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle lines into Jerusalem, and he's going to disarm him with fake concern. And then he's going to send Uriah to spend time with his wife, Bathsheba. And then he's going to send him back to the battlefront. Nine months later, Bathsheba would would have her child, and Uriah the Hittite would be none the wiser, and David would have total deniability. But David wasn't prepared for the kind of man the Uriah was. Notice with me in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house instead of going to his house where Bathsheba was. He slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. He's doing the very thing that David failed to do. He's on mission, and he's supposed to be on the battle line. Most specifically, sexual relations was a source of ritual impurity. That's not to say it was sinful. It's to say that, as we saw last week with the ritual cleansing laws for those who had finished a menstrual cycle, it's a way of teaching God's people that holiness was to pervade every area of life and that God is holy and that His people are to be holy. And so that's the reason that... It was to be avoided during a military campaign. We saw that all the way back in 1 Samuel 21. And we see those ritual purity laws in Leviticus 15. But Uriah the Hittite was likely of Canaanite origin, which meant his background was pagan. But he's been converted. It's very clear in the text that he is a convert. In fact, his name Uriah means the light of Yahweh. Yahweh being the covenantal name for God's people, the Israelites. He is showing himself here to be faithful to the law and to be faithful uh, as a true Gentile convert. Now notice in verse 10, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. That had to astounded David in the state that he was in. David said to Uriah, have you not come? From a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, we don't know whether Uriah knew what David had done. I think the writer is keeping that kind of open. He wants us to feel something of what David would have felt. David, at this point, has to be questioning in his mind, does this man know this? 
Certainly that would create a paranoia with David. But what he says, what Uriah says here, has to have humiliated David because Uriah is committed to all the things that David, the king, should have been leading in but wasn't. This is a Hittite from a pagan nation who lives the way that a classic Israelite is supposed to live. Note his reference to the ark. As we have seen in our studies in Samuel, the ark represented that God is covenantally present with his people, that God reconciles his people through blood sacrifice. Uh, The ark represented that God is a ruling God, a residing God, a reconciling God, a resourcing God. But whether or not he intended this or not, As Uriah speaks about the ark, David would have likely, clearly, have been reminded what was contained in that ark, the Ten Commandments. And in particular, he would have known that the seventh commandment was, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he would have known the tenth commandment that says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. This is a Gentile who has been grafted in, who is living in such a way to make the Jew jealous. And so David here is thwarted by virtue. It won't be the last time. That brings us to his second plan. His second plan, plan B in the sin labyrinth. We we find that in verse 12. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. At this point, I think David's trying to concoct a plan. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next day. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord But he did not go down to his house. David is in a sin labyrinth. And once you enter that labyrinth, you may think you have 20-20 vision. But even if you do, it does you no good. In that labyrinth, you make that initial call of presumptuous sin. And now every decision takes you deeper and deeper into that which you do not know, an abyss. David, who famously wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, is now his own shepherd. He has rejected the Lord as his shepherd. And now he's having to rely on his own fallen reason. And now in that state, he tries to make Uriah like himself. But a drunk Uriah the text is going to make clear, was better at this point than a sober David. David's plot fails again. Now David is confronted with only two choices. The right choice to confess his sin, to humble himself and to trust the Lord with his repentance. Or the other choice is to silence the voice of Uriah. That brings us to plot C 
in the sin labyrinth in verse 14. It will take us all the way to the first part of 27. Now look in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. In other words, put him up front and draw all the other men back. It's insane. Clearly, David's conspiracy would have been found out doing that. That he may be struck down and die. David believes that this plan will work because he knows he has a man in Uriah who will take orders. And so he sends the letter by the hand of Uriah. That's what's remarkable here, because he knew Uriah would not break code and open up that letter. In other words, in Uriah, we have a man in whom there's no guilt, at least with regard to this specific episode, a man with no guilt who would die betrayed because he was faithful unto death, surrounded by enemies, I might add, and pierced through. But David recognized this in Uriah because that was once David. When he's looking at Uriah, he's looking at a mirror. He's looking in a mirror of his, of his past. But David had drifted. Can that happen to great men? It's a warning to us all. And it takes David to a place unfathomable, stunning. In fact, if we weren't familiar with chapter 11, and most of us who are believers are, are familiar with chapter 11, we wouldn't believe what we are reading in this text. These are as cold-blooded of verses as you will find anywhere in the Bible. And remember how it began. In a culture that has normalized pornography, it began with seeing. It began with seeing. If the eye is bad, the body is filled with darkness. Jesus Christ. This is the same man who had refused to shed blood in order to protect his own skin. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26. But now David is in a paranoid, schizophrenic cover-up. It's a horrific place to be. It's Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when there is no one pursuing. Heather and I were in the Bahamas, and our good friends, Donald and Candy Sweeting, pastor, his wife, took us to the island, Harbor Island. And we had lunch there at this amazing beach resort. And we were told while there that one of the surface, uh, services that this resort has always offered is that if, if a customer leaves his or her personal items in a hotel room, they would just send those items back to the customer's home free of charge. But they stopped doing that. And here's the reason. 
They had broken up too many marriages doing that. They would send those items back to the home and their spouse would find that their husband or wife had not been on a business trip. They'd been to the Bahamas. This kind of life is one absorbed with the fear that my sham universe, that I have created myself for my own pleasure, is going to crumble at any moment. And I'm going to be found out. And this is a massive problem, not unique to a few. And that's why so many have resonated with Mark Twain's witty but, but sad statement. Certainly an overstatement, but he makes his point by the statement. He said, I once sent a dozen of my friends a telegram saying, flee at once, all is discovered. And they all left town immediately. Such is the paranoia of hidden, unchecked sin. Well, at this point, David's plan was not yet discovered. Yet. And that brings us to verse 16. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. I love that. In contrast to who David is at this point. Valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So Joab complied with David's orders. I'm not sure he understood all that was going on, but he complied with his uncle and his king's orders as his military commander and a man who was quick to fight. But as we're going to see in verse 20, in order to cover David's foolish plot, he revised David's plan. As I said earlier, David had called for a withdrawal of the troops, leaving Uriah alone to die. But Joab's plan camouflaged that. He, it camouflaged that to protect David from an obvious conspiracy. But at the expense of many of David's men. Verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab immediately sends a messenger to David. And he knew well that the king would likely be angry at the loss of so many soldiers. David's plan was for only one soldier to die, not several. And Joab anticipated that anger, that concern, 
and he prepared the messenger by imagining a potential conversation that David would have in light of what he hears. The reason a sieging army, and in this case it was Israel, the reason a sieging army would keep its distance from the city walls was that the enemy would shoot from the top of those walls and the sieging army would be very vulnerable in that case. The, the army on top of the walls obviously would have the advantage. But that's exactly what Joab had done. Joab had, Joab had sent the men to the walls, which was military suicide. Joab was a military genius. He knew better than that, and he knew that David knew better than that. And there was a story from Judges 9 that everyone knew that drove that home. That's what he's appealing to here. Centuries earlier at the Bez, there was a man named Abimelech. Abimelech was the, the son of the famous judge Gideon. Gideon dies, Abimelech kills all of his brothers, and then declares himself king. But he was killed himself when he tried to set fire to a tower in which the people of the Bez had taken refuge from him. And so he was mortally wounded when a woman, she must have been some kind of strong woman, dropped a millstone on his head. And this was the classic story that military leaders learned in training. It was the classic story that drove home how foolish it was to approach too close to a wall that protected an enemy. And Joab imagined David bringing that story up. That's what we're talking about here. He imagined David bringing up that history lesson to the messenger. But then note the final line, that the messenger was to give David, just in case David brought up that history lesson, your servant Uriah is dead also. Mission accomplished. Well, notice in verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. He's explaining why they came so close to the wall. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Remarkably, David responds in these sad and sobering words. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. No big deal. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Now I want you to go back to verse 25 here. Do not let this matter displease you. Hebrew scholars say literally, this reads, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. Do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. David has moved deeper and deeper into the sin labyrinth. 
Uriah was murdered, and there was a whole lot of collateral damage. Other men, other soldiers have died. But Joab, don't see this as an evil thing because your king and uncle does not see this as an evil thing. You see what sin does? It blinds. It desensitizes. And, and to confirm the insanity of this statement, the writer notes in verse 26, and here we see you, Bathsheba's name mentioned for the first time since verse 5, where we hear her own, only words in the text, I'm pregnant. We see her here, and I think the reason for that is the whole point is that, that David is the culprit in this passage. Notice in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard, again, the writer is driving home. This is someone's wife. This is serious. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David and sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. It seems that David is going to get away with his sin at this point, with his wickedness, with his, with his evil plotting. I mean, is that, is that what this is teaching us? That if you're cunning enough, resourceful enough, and powerful enough, you can get away with sin's consequences? Well, for the first time in the chapter, we see the Lord mentioned. And we see that the answer is no. The final point of this passage, we've seen the plotting, the evil plotting in sin's labyrinth. And the final point in the second part of verse 27, the people's plot in vain. Now, where would I get that language from? I would get it from the pen of David who wrote it. Psalm 2, verse 1, the evil people's plot in vain. Notice with me in the verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this is an intentional echo of verse 25. Again, let's go back to verse 25. Literally, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. David has become a postmodern existentialist. We determine our own meaning. Don't let this be evil in your eyes because it's not evil in my eyes. And the last part of this chapter tells us it doesn't matter what we view as evil. What does God see as evil? This was evil. The Lord had literally, this is what it says, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you are making light of the presumptuous sins of the flesh, and what do I mean by presumptuous sins? That may be a term you're not familiar with. There are sins that we don't intentionally commit. It may be that we, we have a, a bitter thought towards someone. We didn't just wake up in the morning and intend to commit that, but it just, it just flew out, it, it rose out of a heart that, that is sinful, and then you repent of it. Presumptuous sin is where you presume upon the grace of God. I'm going to commit this sin, and I'm going to ask God for forgiveness later. That is 
presumptuous sin. And if you are making light of the presumptuous sins of the flesh, you are already in sin's labyrinth and are living on borrowed time. That's a fact. David represents here countless, countless, innumerable people through the ages by his thinking that the only consequences that matter have to do with being publicly found out. But this is a failure to believe. Even what his own son would write in time. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. Ironically, from the pen of one who would later be conceived from Bathsheba. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. David would eventually repent. We can read those Psalms of repentance, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. They're glorious. And later in Psalm 32, he gives us a picture of what he was experiencing in this time in sin's labyrinth where he was not repentant, where he was not contrite, he was not experiencing godly sorrow. He writes in Psalm 32, 3, For when I kept silent, that is, he sat on his sin, and he rationalized it, and he, and he tempted all of these plots to get out of the labyrinth. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Is there any sin worth that? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Paul famously wrote, in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And I think we as Christians have a way of kind of toning down that warning. We tend to think when we read Romans 6.23, that doesn't apply to me. I'm in Christ. My sins are forgiven. And for sure there is a truth to that. There is a final judgment that awaits the unbeliever. But it's a failure to understand that even as Christians, as believers, when we persist in sin for a time, there is a progressive, progressive poisoning for those who dine at sin's table. Tragically, David had become like Saul. And all the wicked goons he had sent to kill David. All the way back in Samuel. And David in response in Psalm 59 had written these haunting words in that account. You, Lord of hosts, are God of Israel. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Do you get that? Under divine inspiration of the Spirit, David is calling down Judgment on those who plot evil. Verse 13, consume them in wrath that they may know that God rules over Jacob. Do you get that? 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is requesting, and rightly so, divine wrath on those who plot evil. And now that's him. That's him. Now let's go back to the atheist tribe. The question was posed by this tribe. What kind of God could commend a man like this? And why would we serve this kind of God? That's the question of the, the atheist track. So back to the beginning. How do we respond to accusations like that atheist track? First of all, we can begin by saying that that atheist track says some things that are very true. The human heroes of the Old Testament were all sinners to the core, depraved. But this reveals the honesty of the Scriptures. No other religious tome even dares to reveal the sins of its heroes like our Bible does. And why does the Bible do that? Because the Bible is pointing us beyond mere human heroes to a Savior, a Messiah. In other words, our flawed and sinful heroes point us to the Messiah in part by showing us that they themselves need that Messiah. They themselves need that Savior. They themselves need the forgiveness of sins. But they receive it by looking forward to the promise centered on this Messiah. They receive it. And David received it. Psalm 32, again, one of two Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, that were written as Psalms of repentance after this horrific episode. David writes, blessed, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whose sin is expiated. And that's how the evil plotter, David, escaped that wrath that he pronounced in Psalm 59 on evil plotters. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. The covering of sins. But here's the question. How can a holy God forgive wickedness without compromising who he is? Isn't that the question of the Bible? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us with that by picking up this very psalm, Psalm 32, again written later in response to David's repentance over Bathsheba and Uriah. And in Romans 4, Paul is musing on that psalm. And here's what he writes in one of the most scandalous verses in the New Testament, gloriously scandalous, because it does not fit the way we think. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
You see that? Ungodly. He justifies the... How can God justify the ungodly? Well, first of all, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to justify? Well, justification, that glorious doctrine means this. It's an act of God's free grace where God pardons us. He, he forgives us of all of our sins. All right? How does he do that? But only for the righteousness of Christ, who by God's grace, his righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith alone. And so, when we trust in Christ, whose righteousness is perfect, his righteousness is credited to us. And notice what Romans goes on and says, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. He's quoting Psalm 32. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, how can God be holy and not count count our sin? Well, he does count our sin, but not against us who believe. He counts it against the Son. The Son takes the sin. That's what Romans 3 tells us. And God satisfies his wrath on that sin in the Son, the greater David. But as we close, it's important to stress here for all of us who are tempted and drawn to shadow glories that can lead us into sin's labyrinth, that the only means, there's only one way, only one means to overcome this natural pull. And it's this. It's to be captivated by something or rather someone more beautiful, more glorious than anything we can see with our physical eyes. Remember, it began with David seeing something with his physical eyes. And let me offer you just one of many texts that capture the beauty and the glory of this person, this being. In Matthew 1.1, a text we looked at a few weeks ago, Matthew begins with the genealogy of our Savior, the one who came to save us from our sins. And in verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verse 5, notice what it says, laying out this family tree, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now, who is Rahab? Former prostitute. Can you be forgiven of the sins of prostitution? Rahab was by grace through faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that. So much so that now she's in the line of our Messiah. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Who is Ruth? A Moabitess. Who are the Moabites? They had an auspicious origin. Lot having an incestuous affair with his daughters. The Moabites were pagans. They were wicked to the core. Can you be forgiven for that? Ruth was. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
Now, Solomon was not the baby that was conceived here. He'll be conceived later, but do you get the point? In the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're not even given Bathsheba's name. We're just reminded that in Jesus' genealogy is a woman who was married to another man, but who conceived a child by an adulterous tryst. But there's forgiveness of sins in this Messiah. Such marvelous grace from an incomparable God, an incomparable Savior. Let me close with this one, one of my favorite statements on what I've been talking about here, where we have to behold something more beautiful that will wean us off phantom beauty. John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, says this, On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. Now remember, David at this point in time was the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's what it means. He's the anointed one. And one of the points this whole episode is telling us is that, yes, the hope is found in David's line, in David's family, but David's not the one. We need someone far greater than David. That's what the word is communicated to the people of God at that time. But here, Owen says, on Christ's glory, the true Christ, the greater Christ, the ultimate Christ, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more crucified to this world. That's the means. That's the method. It will become to me like something dead and putrid. Impossible for me to enjoy. That's the means by which you overcome sexual immorality. That's the means by which you are pulled away from the temptations of sexual sin, like adultery and pornography. You behold that which is truly beautiful. And that's my prayer for every believer watching. And my prayer for you that have not yet trusted in Jesus, what I want you to remember is there's no sin beyond forgiving. If you will trust in Christ, if you will confess your sin, don't be like David and persist in sin's labyrinth. Repent of it. Humble yourself, recognizing that every choice you make in unrepentance is going to take you deeper and deeper into the labyrinth. But there is a nail-pierced hand that will pull you out if you will humble yourself and flee to him. If you will trust in Jesus that he died on the cross for your sin, that he was raised from the grave for your justification. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. It's a hard passage. It's a dark passage. But it's a passage that we all need to hear. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of Christ who came to glorify Christ would press these truths on the heart of every listener. And we ask these things in the name of our greater David, our greater Christ and Messiah.
Jesus Christ. Amen. Sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are, and where you Church, what a sobering message we've heard this morning, um, and yet what a humbling picture of grace to know that even David's sin 
and truly all of our sins, when we confess, He is faithful, He is just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And so I pray that that is our, that is our daily our daily pattern to continually repent and believe, not to be saved all over again, that doesn't happen, but to continually be before the Lord in a posture of, of confession and yet adoration and confessing like we just sang, that we need you every hour we need you. He is our one defense. He is our righteousness. So as we dismiss here today, just want to remind you that if you're new to First Baptist Fisherville or joining us here today, uh, maybe for the first time stumbling across us on, online, we want to urge you to reach out and contact us. There'll be some information on the screens, and you can find us on, the, on Facebook as well as message us through our, um, through our webpage. And so we want to hear from you. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to get those in. Uh, but let's go to the Lord right now, and let's end this time with a word of prayer, a word of thanksgiving. Father, we do thank you for time to be together, even digitally like this. I'm, I thank you for this team around me and behind the camera uh, making all of this happen. Uh, we thank you for the means that we can still have some semblance of gathering, even though it's across a digital platform like this. And we do long for the time where we can be back together listening to and hearing the saints sing your praises and receive your word as it's preached. But until that time, Lord, during this season, however long it may last, we pray that you would find us faithful, confessing our sins and putting our hope over and over again in the truth of the gospel of Christ and living lives of faithfulness, living lives of obedience, um, not wasting our time um, in in silly things, much less like David pursuing sin. Lord, I look forward to next week when we hear about Nathan confronting David and then the true repentance that comes from those who are marked by grace and who know you. Conviction of sin is part of your loving discipline for us and it is a means of grace towards our enduring until the end. So we look forward to that. And yet we sit with this truth this week. I pray that your spirit will continue to move through the words that we've heard and received this morning in our lives throughout the week. May it feed us and nourish us and convict us and summon us to a gracious and loving and forgiving God. Lord, thank you again for time to gather like this, able to hear your word, to sing your truth. We ask all of these things through the great name of Christ, we pray. Amen.